Before we get started today, I just want to say that this will be the last episode of Season 2 of Drew Archives in 10. It's been a great semester, and I've certainly learned a lot about the holdings of the Drew University Archives and Special Collections, and I want to say thanks very much to Candice Riley for guiding us on this audio tour. It's been great, and I look forward to learning more in Season 3, which we currently have planned for the fall semester 2021. Hope everyone has a great summer, and I hope that you will join us again in the fall. But for now, enjoy the Season 2 finale of Drew Archives in 10. Hello out there, bibliophiles, and welcome to another episode of Drew Archives in 10. I'm Andrew Salvati, adjunct professor of media and communications here at Drew. And joining me today via Zoom is interim manager of Methodist Library and Special Collections, Candice Riley. Hello, Candice. Hi, Andrew. How you doing? Doing well. Doing well. How about you? Good. Good. Same here. So what do you have for us today? So today we're going to we're going to keep talking about some odd items that are found within the archives. All right. Uh, this time we're talking about weird Wesleyana and macabre Methodism. You probably don't think of macabre Methodism as those two words kind of associated with one another, but we have some two especially interesting artifacts within special collections that I want to talk about today. The first one being John Wesley's death mask. So death masks were a very standard part of funeral art in the 18th century. Um, Many famous people such as artists, writers, religious figures, kings, queens, what have you, had death masks. It was a way to kind of mark that, that point at the end of their life, and then people could see their final form. Life masks were also a thing as well, Um, but we have an example of John Wesley's death mask here in the archives. It's actually displayed in our classroom upstairs. So when we reopen, if you want to come and see it, you are more than welcome to take a look. So the Wesley death mask that we have, um, it hung on a wall with a string attached to the back. We had three copies made of the mask in the 1990s. Um, there are, there's one at Duke University, uh, Southern Methodist University, Rylands, at, at Manchester. This death mask was taken approximately six hours after Wesley's death. You could see the shape of the eyes. They kind of, um, they're closed and they sag downwards. But you can see a lot from a person's face by the death mask. And also yeah. because they, they then died, you can kind of see how that formed on their face. Yeah, it's so, it's so detailed. It's very expressive. Um, so he had a stroke and you could see that on the right side of his face, how it slightly sags. Okay, yeah. Also, um, a bump on his upper right lip. And you can see that when our listeners, I'll post the photo to our website as well. This bump was because he had an abscess. Okay. He had a crooked tooth as well. And the people would remark that if he was a teenager nowadays, he would have definitely given braces. But you can see on, on the face here how he suffered with this abscess, how it's shown on his, his face, and with the stroke as well. Yeah, it looks like it might be might have been painful because I mean it's really pushing his his lips down even. It, yeah. It's it's very it's protruding quite a lot. But it's so amazing that we can we can see all these details too. Yes, because we there are many paintings that show the death of John Leslie. So you see him um, reclining in bed and all the mourners come. But to see an actual death mask, it's you know, it was originally on his face to cast this mask. So it's a really fascinating artifact. And I think death masks and life masks in general are, it's this kind of interesting way to do portraiture, right? And you could really study the human form that way. So that's um, one item I wanted to talk about today. Uh, The other one 
is George Whitfield's Fingerbone. People at Drew, a lot of our students know that the archives has a finger bone mm -hmm. and it has been a tradition by a lot of students, especially in the theological school, to make sure they see the finger bone before you graduate. <laughs> so uh, we keep this also in the classroom upstairs. It is housed actually in a little tiny candy dish that two previous heads of special collections ago, he had the thumb bone kept in this little candy dish in his desk drawer and next to his sugar cubes. Um, because we didn't have a proper way to, to show it off yet. Oh, make sure you pick the right one. I know, I when know. When you're going for that sugar cube, right? Oh, yeah, you don't want to go for the thumb. <laughs> <laughs> so this thumb bone has a very interesting story. Drew University received it in the 1980s by a donor. Um, he claimed that the thumb bone was in possession from his family for quite some time. It is the forepart of a thumb. It's from the knuckle to the fingernail, which you could still see is a little bit visible. Um, <laughs> people have also claimed that it could possibly be the bottom joint of the thumb to the rest of the hand. Um, we have not had that verified by a medical okay. professional. And it is well known that George Whitfield, um, he died in Newburyport in Massachusetts in 1770. Um, he was then buried in the church's crypt, which is very typical. And then he was visited by a lot of very curious and devout Methodists for many years. Very typical as well. You would visit somebody who had a very big impact in the church, you'd visit the crypt. It was visited regularly um, up until the late 1890s. However, there's an interesting bit in this early part of his history after he died. As early as 1775, we have records that people would open the casket and mm. items off of George Whitfield's corpse, mostly his clothing, because he did so much for the people that they wanted to then have a piece of him to think it would bring them possibly good luck. Right. In the 1830s, his entire right arm was removed and actually sent to England. The gentleman in England kept the arm for about 20 years, and then he returned it in his old age. And the mayor of Newburyport was so pleased that the bones were then returned finally to George Whitfield's crypt that they built a new special casket for that arm and paraded it throughout the town. And people, um, even up until the 1930s, still came to view the remains of George Whitfield. And in 1933, the coffin lid was then replaced with slate, which then stopped people from touching the body, mm -hmm. uh, George Whitfield, and viewing the bones. So it's now just a properly closed crypt. This is a very strange bit of Wesleyana Methodist history because they're almost treating the body of George Whitfield here as a relic. And right. it's not part of the Methodist religion to them. Yeah. It's, it's much more Catholic, Roman Catholic, especially. If we think about how saints were then venerated, um, you would have like, you know, bits of the saints, body parts or clothing, possibly blood. And people would go and take pilgrimages to then view these parts of the saint because they believe something special would happen, that they could, you know, their prayers would be answered because saints were intercessors to God, that you would then pray to the saint, that saint would connect to God, and that would then get back to you, and then you would be um, taken care of. By right, that right. So this is kind of a, a very similar type of saint culture, which is fascinating that this was then applied to a, a Methodist preacher who was so well acclaimed and so well um, loved by the Methodists, but to then treat his body almost saintly is fascinating. Yeah. Uh, especially with like, you know, you're pulling parts 
and body parts off the sink, uh, off, off of, excuse me, off of George Whitfield's body, it's you're you're taking away from his tomb, which people may think of you know you're not letting him rest. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting how then it was um, his body then was kind of looted in a way to then create these important thumb bone, an arm that was taken, any other parts that were then venerated by Methodists and researchers. Yeah, that's interesting to think. Like in the moral calculus, does the grave robbery get canceled out by the possession of an object that can act as an intercessor, as you say, to the Almighty? <laughs> you, you just yeah. you kind of wonder. Do we know for sure that this is George Whitfield's thumb bone? Or is it like, you know, as you were mentioning in the Roman Catholic tradition, is it something like, well, you know, we have seven of George Whitfield's thumb bones, so... <laughs> Yeah, um, it, it's not nearly as popular as we can say that there are like 30 heads of St. Christopher Roman. Right. This is, it's it's much more of a, a rare phenomenon. We have not checked, um, I, think, I think it's Harvard, I believe, I could be mistaken, that they have another part of Whitfield that we would like to possibly make, you know, compare the medical. Right. We have not done that. But we are going off of the donor reports and the story, and I, we believe that sure. it's Whitfield's thumb bone. But no, we don't have a scientific analysis that proves that it is Whitfield. But it is a very interesting part and an artifact of the collection here. And I think it kind of speaks to this intercessor belief and how it's kind of crossed over from different forms of Christianity, um, which is, I think, very fascinating. Sure. Well, thanks for sharing this with us, Candace. Both of these, the Death Mask and George Whitfield's Thumbbone, uh, very fascinating objects within the archives collection. Sure. Happy to show it off. And I hope no one is uh, too perturbed. Too creeped out. <laughs> too perturbed. Yeah. Thanks very much. Sure. That's our show. Be sure to check out the images of the materials we've discussed on this and other episodes of Drew Archives in 10 by visiting the Drew Archives and Special Collections website at www.drew.edu forward slash library forward slash media. You can also check out images of the archives material at the Drew University Participatory Archives at dupaarchive.org. There's a lot of great stuff there, so be sure to check it out. For myself, Dr. Andrew Salvati, and for Candace Riley, be well, stay safe, and we'll see you next time on Drew Archives in 10.